Welcome to Data as a Team Sport. This is School of Data's podcast series exploring the ever-evolving data literacy ecosystem. Other episodes in this series focus on specific areas within the ecosystem, such as enabling learning, advocacy, the role of intermediaries, and incentivizing government. These podcasts were edited from live online conversations, and you can find the video of that conversation, notes, and links to all the resources we've mentioned, along with other episodes, in the blog at schoolofdata.org. I'm your host, Dirk Slater, and I have an agency called FabWriters, and along with being an active member of the School of Data community, we also help advocates and activists design tactics that utilize data to accelerate social change campaign strategies. You can learn more about us at fabwriters.net. Helping me out both behind and in front of the scenes is Caitlin Rogers from School of Data. In this one-on-one episode, I'm talking with Friedhelm Weinberg, Executive Director of Heredox, and he began by telling me about the evolution of their tools, which were developed for human rights defenders to support their documentation of violations. If we look back into almost 30 years of developing tools, then we can see a clear trajectory of not just adopting to new operating systems. So the first database that we've um, built, FSIS, was built for Word, uh, not for Word, for, for DOS. And then later on, there was something called WinFSIS, which, as the name would suggest, was working on Windows. And then later on, OpenFSIS, which is a browser-based system. So obviously, it's staying current with the technology, but it's also adopting to make it a lot more easy to use so that you don't have to be an expert. That makes it more flexible to use so that you don't have to use a certain way of working just because the tool is built in a certain way. Tools now allow to be a lot more flexible and wider varieties of of work, which also corresponds to how the human rights movement has arguably flexibilized and diversified. Um, It's working. It's it's a bigger movement now. So there's a lot more ways of working that that exist. So the tools need to respond to that. They need to uh, live up to this. But um, fundamentally, I think what, what maybe remains the same across this trajectory is really understanding what is needed for um, human rights goals. Is it advocacy? Is it litigation? And making sure that the tools really support these processes. So maybe that's the, uh, that's the mainstay, but then technologies have evolved. They're better now. Uh, there's more collaboration. It's, there's easier use, and there's arguably stronger capabilities for for analysis of uh, larger scale information. Have you guys noted that there's been any sort of evolution with people in understanding um, uh, technology and interacting with the tools? No, absolutely, there is. I think back then it was it was a lot more specialized. There, there. A lot less people doing this, mm-hmm. and their background often was, was library science. There was a lot of librarians who got into the organization of information, which makes sense. And nowadays, I think we see a lot more diverse profiles. There are software developers as as a profession, and there are many of them who want to get into the human rights movement and contribute their skills. But there is also um, activists who are a lot more technology savvy than than they might have been in the past because it's more accessible to do so. You can be self-taught and and get into this. And there's all kinds of cross-cutting profiles that um, that come in. There are designers because interface design is um, we can see much nicer interfaces and there's a lot more possible. Also, we can touch our screens now. So 
it needs different skill sets, but also there is maybe more people who bring these skill sets um, into the development and use of these tools. Um, I, I know that that you know you Herodox, uh doesn't just think of itself as as a tool developer. Um, um, that you guys also you know do you, you're you think of yourselves also as being capacity builders, and I'm just wondering if. If 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 one sort of dominates over the others, or if there is sort of a healthy balance between the two. If if anything, I think the capacity building needs to come first because that's that's when you concretely work with organizations to understand um, the nature of the problem that they're trying to address. Um, how is information helpful in leading change? What kind of information do you need to gather? How can you gather it? Uh, what tools are available? What is what is the capacity and what support can can strengthen that so you can really have a difference? And that's I think fundamentally the, the process where a lot of the value for uh, human rights organizations is developed. Um, so if anything, that is the most important because you can see concrete results. At the same time, this is giving an insight into into those needs and helps us learn and abstract. What are recurring needs? Because if we only build capacity and only it's it's something something important, then we have the risk of reinventing the wheel over and over again. So taking the learnings, taking all the great insights from these interventions helps us build tools that correspond to those needs, and at the same time avoid investing and reinventing the wheel over and over again. So it's finding that balance. But if we would have to make a choice, I think the direct support work with, with human rights organizations is the most important part. Well, how can, how do you think the tools uh, do inform the capacity building work? Um, do you think your, your tools do play any role in helping like fresh or new human rights defenders to understand the process uh, needed in collecting data? If you have a tool that suggests a certain way of working, that can be tremendously helpful because you don't have to start from scratch. You don't have to reimagine your process from the very beginning and, and what you need to record, what you need to um, put together. At the same time, obviously, it's also guiding you in a certain direction. That's why I think before using a tool, a discovery of needs, of, of possibilities, and also of the real capacities going forward and the strategies needs to happen. Because otherwise, there's this strong risk of, of guiding with a tool that sends you the wrong way. At the same time, they can anchor you. And they can give you ideas, they can give you inspiration of how you could do things and how others are already doing things, established ways of doing uh, of doing work that are tremendously helpful to build on. So they can provide this element of capacity building, of pre-structuring discussions um, that need to be anchored in a good understanding that that's the kind of pre-structuring that you want, but they can really help you um, basically come to something that, that supports your work faster and don't spend your time on imagining something that maybe is interesting to imagine, but not the most important part. So you can then spend more time on, on your advocacy strategy, on, on actually getting the data, on, on managing it. So I think it's that part uh, that is very helpful. It, it can be a tool for, for showing you something and when you see something, it, it becomes real and it gives you new ideas. You have developed these tools as a result of working much more deeply with organizations, and then and then the tools really reflect that. And I think in one of the things that's um, probably good to touch on specifically for the series is, you know, uh, um, often 
uh, folks that are doing data collection around human rights violations um, can be uh, uh, amassing a huge amount of, of information. And I've um, often, like I, re- I remember sitting down the first time I, I sat down with OpenFSIS and was being showed it, and it was about, you know, uh, vi- rel- relatively simplifying the amount of information that was going to be um, used, right, or being collected in the thing. It was the perpetrator, um, the victim, and then, and then the act of violence. Um, and it, 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 it's interesting in terms of, like, you know, thinking about what is the information you actually need and in order to aggregate, right, and then also prove stuff, right? And I think one of the things that was really interesting to me in terms of, you know, open FSIS and the, the, the kind of data that, that was being asked to be collected in it was around being able to um, uh, prove stuff in courts of law, right? And, and, you know, with sort of international bodies and all that. And so these very specific pieces of information were really critical. And so then, you know, going out and working with uh, uh, an organization to help them better understand um, what it takes to do human rights documentation, um, looking at all the thing, you know, the information that they had collected and then getting them to think a little bit more clearly about like, you know, you don't need all that. You just need this, though those other the other bits that they had, which was actually quite around narrative and story around violence that had happened, um, can be used in other contexts, specifically around like, you know, um, uh, you know, trying to to actually uh, connect with people themselves and trying to get them to better understand, you know, the implications and the. uh, the results of of the violence and what was happening. It's important to understand. So that's that's the point I was trying to make earlier. What it is that you want to to achieve with your your data, with the information you're gathering, and to have then the the techniques and the tools that support you in achieving that. And in that sense, a tool can can guide you, but it can also guide you in the wrong direction, especially if it comes with uh, as OpenFSIS does with a predefined methodology, which is very useful in many cases. We, we saw the Global Witness Report that came out last yeah. week on the killing of environmental defenders. And for them, it's tremendously useful to document things in this way because it helps them aggregate this information, do this in a, a very robust way. At the same time, it's not for everyone and probably not for the, for the group that you worked with if the goals are, are different. And then it becomes not always easy to reduce, if that makes any sense. So mm. if you have too much more than you need, then to be able to, to take things away and cut things down is very difficult. So that's why I think moving forward, it was a big lesson for us to learn. How can we make sure that we don't sort of guide people too far? Because once you're, once you're far, it's hard to say, like, I don't need that. Because there's always a way you can imagine where you actually would need it. But it can be distracting from where you actually want to get. If you actually want to get stories and narratives then designing forms and thinking about Fizaris in these forms is probably not the most important thing you can do. So how can we design tools that support the work that you actually want to do um, at the same time can give you this guidance when you need it? And that's an ongoing quest, an ongoing discovery, but I think it's a really important learning moment to, to, see, both, um, to see both sides. 
But I think it's it's really going beyond tools. It's it's fundamental of capacity building because I think examples can inspire you as inspire you as much as they can uh, set you off the wrong path. That's why it's really important to to carefully choose what you sort of look into more deeply or be critical when you do so. I haven't gotten a chance to to really deep, deep, dig more deeply into Uwazi, which is what you guys have sort of evolved to from the open emphasis systems. I'm just wondering, you know, what can you speak a little bit about that and how it's different um, and what it is, what's the problems it's trying to solve for uh, human rights defenders? The starting point is different because it's starting with the assumption that you have a lot of documents right now, later and hopefully other types of media, but you're starting with documents, you want to do something with them. So you want to understand what's in your documents. You want to extract the knowledge from your documents and, and build from the ground up. That can be a collection of case law so that you, you make it accessible. You, you basically make it a research base that helps you build your next case. So you can build on um, doing research once and not having to do it over again, but really building something that, that lives but it also helps you if we think of more investigative um, types of, uh, of of work. If you start with, say, 60 testimonies and you can really annotate the documents and then start identifying, well, who's who? Um, is this the perpetrator? Is this the victim? Then you can start stitching things together. So it's maybe a more bottom-up approach, but rooted in documents, which was a big need that we that we saw with human rights organization. There was no tool that allowed you to effectively work with documents in a collaborative way that helps you extract the knowledge and, and, and get get further. At the same time, um, many of the fundamentals of, of documentation um, apply to this. So moving forward, what we'd like to do is not just support document-driven work there, but uh, to see this as, as one flavor, so to say, at the same time, um, coming up with, you could call them templates of work. Uh, if we think of human rights documentation, there, there are some more victim-centered approaches and some more perpetrator-centered approaches that require you to have different workflows. And coming up with, I wouldn't say basic, but templates that help you get jump-started in that process if you can self-identify with these. Um, so you don't have to go all the way to the event standard methodology if you don't have to, which is the methodology that was one of the big legacies of, of the Eurodox of the 80s and 90s, which is a very robust methodology, but for many it's it's going too far. So what are the other standard methodologies you could say that then you can remix and build on so that you don't have to start over, so you're not driven in the wrong direction, but you can um, build on existing knowledge. And you also can work in comparable ways so that if at one point you, you want to exchange information with someone else, this process is facilitated because you work in similar ways. You know, the ability for there to be documentation in a, a wide variety of formats these days. So, you know, mobile phones are everywhere and they can be data collection devices, but, you know, even more robustly in terms of being able to, you know, take a video and capture stuff that is what has happened. So I'm just curious about how that's, that has impacted um, your work and what you're thinking about in terms of, of, new tools and Anduwazi and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it's not just us. I mean, it's the whole ecosystem. If we, if we look at what the Guardian project is doing with, uh, with Camera V or Verified Pixel, which is helping to um, support that 
the evidence or the media that is collected with phones would, would hold up in court. I think that there's important work around that. And then the question is, where does all of that go? Um, does it go online in a, in a public space, which it doesn't always can because it's sensitive information oftentimes. So I think one of the big moments that as a community we need to work on, and I think we would want to play an important role there, is ways of how to gather all this information and actually do something with it. Because right now, all of this is done often in a very ad hoc way, which makes it tremendously difficult then to, to um, get into methodologies. Uh, it takes a long time to, to find out how to do this effectively, how to avoid duplications, and how to then retrieve later on the information you need, because a spreadsheet doesn't always um, allow you to do this easily. So you need to have better tools that allow you to work with this diverse media, but then annotate and, and build cases if you want to build cases. Or... Um, generate the kind of information that you would want to display in a campaign or be able to retrieve a certain piece of information so that then you can investigate further because it is a lead, it turns out that you need to go into more deeply. So I think this, one could say, that there is more media means we need to have better media management and better information management that's, that takes stock of that. And that allows us to use it in our investigations. But then the investigation techniques, they will surely change, but I think they'll be rooted in, in many of the things that are established, that are rightly established professional standards. So how has the rise of, of post-fact fake news and, and, and data-driven confusion uh, themes, have, have, how have they impacted the process of collecting documentation and presenting evidence? Well, it's the foundation that we work on that we need to have the facts straight it is, I think, an important call to understand, well, but how do, we, how do we explain those stories so that it's not going to be drowned in fake news? Um, how do we make sure that that's the story that's heard and that's the message that's, that makes the breakthrough? So to link a fact-based approach with strategies that help us engage and, and win over arguments, so I think that's... That's the, the important part uh, for our work, but I think for, for civil society in general. Having the facts straight, it's really, it's proven to be very efficient in, in actually winning over arguments, especially if we look at the international area, where if you go to the UN and you go to say, the Human Rights Committee, if you can bring documented facts, then it is very hard for a government uh, to refute that because then they have to prove you wrong. So right. it can be extremely powerful, but that's only one part of the engagement. So if we just rely on facts and numbers, then we're probably missing our critical parts. In terms of you know, getting human rights defenders to understand the implications of, of new technologies that are coming down the pike, I know you guys are doing some work on you know, machine learning and, and all that and trying to actually use that um, to help uh, with documentations, but just curious in terms of like, you know, in the capacity building side, how are you making those connections and how is that sort of, uh, what is that making the future of, of Herodox look like? Yeah, I think there are some, some technologies that are coming up to bring great potentials for, for human rights organizations that um, are right now also very much connotated with, with fear of the negative impacts that they, they could be having. Uh, rightly so. So if we think of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, it, it can be extremely scary. 
at the same time, um, if we like it or not, they're coming. And they can also become uh, very powerful tools in our ability to, to process information, first of all, and to, to learn about connections that we might not be able to make ourselves. So if we take machine learning, one of the experiments that we have done was processing large amounts of case law to identify um, specific cases. So the specific example is we've been taking case law from Pacific Island countries, and we're trying to identify with machine learning techniques which um, of these are about uh, sexual and gender-based violence, and uh, specifically against women. And doing that kind of work, uh, and then verifying it, obviously, with, with humans through sampling, has shown us it, it is actually possible to identify these cases um, out of a much larger set of information and then identify things within these cases that you can you can build on for your advocacy work. So you can then see that there is bias in sentencing. There is uh, a set of arguments that's always held to um, let abusers get away more easily. So if they excuse, for example, or if they pursue... Um, traditional ways of uh, reconciliation, they don't get the appropriate sentence. So that's that's been showing us that these techniques can also be extremely helpful in uncovering these biases and, and showing something that people might know or have a fuzzy feeling about. But when presented with that on, on such a large scale, and we hope that can make a difference. And on a very pragmatic level, like this is something that can help small organizations operate on a much larger scale in their uh, information processing capacity and in their analysis capacity. And that should free them up to, to use that knowledge, that insight gained for, for advocacy. Um, so done right, and that's a big if at this point, as a lot of that innovation comes from big companies, um, this can be a big moment in democratizing access to, to, to big analysis. So that's something that could be very exciting and that we want to explore further and to make accessible in, in simple ways uh, so that there are these small groups who, who can have these capacities that they wouldn't have otherwise because you would have to spend years of, of people power to process documents where a machine can uh, can do this quite fast. It's not always accurate um, to the extent that we want right now, but it's, it's getting much better and it's getting to a point where, where it becomes seriously interesting. Information is so accessible um, and where we often get bogged down is our own abilities to process, you know, manage and go through all this information. So, you know, the machine learning bit seems like the logical next step um uh but one of the things that that uh you know discussions i've been having recently that that have, have shed a lot of of learning for myself is understanding like the differences between the terms machine learning and also um, artificial intelligence um and uh and that they are very much two different things um, and machine learning is much more around, you know, creating, creating algorithms and things like that, that people can, can, um, uh, use to do these things where you are saying, here are the specific things that, you know, that you're, you're telling the machine, these are the specific things that mean this, right? And the difference between that and artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence is, is not us telling the machine that that's what that means in the, the machine or the, the computer coming up with it itself. 
Um, and so within that, what, you know, I think this bit that in terms of the machine learning that I think people really need to grab onto and understand is that, you know, the, that if humans are giving the information to create these algorithms, those algorithms are going to have the same biases that people do. Um, and, and that's a, that's a pro and a con, right? Like the pro is, you know, we can pick out these things. Um, the con is that, you know, sometimes it perpetuates discrimination and, and all that other stuff that humans have. Um, so anyways, just wondering like how much are you, you're trying to, to grapple with this, that kind of tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the question is not, is it creating any new biases, but is it just displaying existing biases? And then if you take it a step further and build decision-making on it, then obviously you have the same bias, but on a much larger scale. Um, so there's a, there's a risk in that there, there's a big risk. Um, at the same time, we should really look and zoom into the capabilities to, to learn about these biases and uh, see what that means for us as, as humans. Maybe we're okay with them. Uh, maybe we're not. And there are probably some that we're okay with and some we're not okay with. So it's allowing us to, to have these discussions and deliberations. I think it's just important to not jump from having these discoveries to uh, saying, well, okay, that's uh, how things are going to be from now on, um, on a, on a much larger scale. That's the, that's the big risk. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing too, like we're, the, the, you know, it's constantly changing and it's, it's shifting so rapidly and the, you know what I mean? Like we're just starting to understand the implications of machine learning um, and, and the implications it has on our work and all that. But, you know, like we're, we're in this phase now where the technology is evolving so quickly and, you know, people are saying AI is just around the corner. We're not there yet. Um, right. And that's going to have a whole other level of implications of what's coming down. Um, and I think for those of us that have been working for a while now and have, have seen these evolutions in terms of technologies, like in terms of the capacity building element of the work, like we, you know, we really do have to help um, uh, our, the, the organizations we work with be prepared and be able to, to understand, right. That the, these things might be providing easy answers now, but you know, in the long run, it might turn out to be problematic and there might be something that comes along relatively quickly. That's going to make it all obsolete. Yeah, um, I think it's it's important to to embrace that complexity and chaos to an extent, and not be carried away um, by by doomsday scenarios or by by two grand master plans. One thing that that's really carried that home for me, um, I'll share that with you for for the notes. But there's there's a book on basically the history of the Soviet internet, and for decades up until they they shut it down in the 80s, they were pursuing. A massive sort of AI uh, to to run the, the state planning to to create live state planning rather than five year plans for for a planning economy and it was as ridiculous as a planning economy is in the first place because it's just creating a, a monster for all eventualities that was never going to work out but they were extremely excited about that they invested tremendous brain power into building this big system. And what's really survived from that are the, the small the small discoveries and the small learnings that then have 
made it into mainstream. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing with technology. Some things might be might be scarier than we think, and many of the things might not be as scary. But if we embrace them and, and build them into our tactics and use them, then I think we have tremendous potential for for social change. That that we can lead with that. Um, yeah. We just have to be forward-looking in that sense. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the challenge, but I, th- I strongly believe we need to be forward-looking and, and embracing those. Well, I think it's the thing too, in terms of the you know what the capacity-building work is really around um, you know making sure that it, uh, uh, pe- people are practicing good critical thought when they are um, using these tools. Uh, and and having the the sort of awareness of you know all those implications and all that. You're listening to Data as a Team Sport. In this one-on-one episode, I'm talking with Friedhelm Weinberg about Hurodoc's experience in being both a tool developer and a capacity builder, helping human rights defenders document violations and knowledge. Your organization has recently, or in its recent history, I should say, you've. Um, now brought developers in house, um, and I I'm, wanted wanted to get you to uh, tell us a little bit about that experience about you know bringing tool developers in house and working side by side with the capacity builders um, that you have and how that has been and what you know what is, the, is there any, anything that sort of surprised you around doing that or any lessons learned um, from going through that experience. If you're a software developer and you haven't been in your in your private life been an activist necessarily, you always have been in favor of social justice, human rights, but you maybe have not been part of a human rights organization. That is a culturally different experience um, because there are serious differences to, to the commercial world. There's higher risk. There's higher data protection needs. There's... Uh, there's a different scale. Most human rights organizations are a lot smaller. So it's a big learning experience to, to understand that and to understand what's what's tickling, what's driving human rights defenders, because I think it's an important thing to to, to picture in your work and to, to know with whom you're working and, and what for. So that's, I think, been a big experience of how can we support uh, software developers who come in-house, uh, who become part of our organizations, to have that same understanding and be be immersed in this world that that we deeply care about that we're that we're a part of and vice versa there's there's software development speak and software development methodologies that are really good and really helpful and understanding these and embracing these and how we can better actually manage our work and and drive things forward and understand how we can um, be responsive and and deliver technology on a, on a in a responsive and fast way, that's also been a real learning moment to you know, NGO people who are thinking in terms of projects and project plans that are linked to proposals and reporting. That is always a, a very planning heavy and less um, driven in something where you rapidly um, where you rapidly build and, and analyze and look how you can change and evolve. So it's been a real learning experience sort of from both sides, but it's been a really good experience as well because having that common understanding or building that common understanding, I'm not sure if we have it yet, 
is, I think, unlocking a lot of uh, creativity uh, for our joint mission, which is supporting the human rights movement to make the best of information and, and technology. So ideally, the, the parts become a bigger whole. And I feel we're, we're having a real good experience in that regard. This piece of, you know, that, that software developers, these methods that they use in terms of getting user input early, right, and often, um, and doing a lot of prototyping and iteration of, um, of tools and, and stuff before, you know, they are released. Um, turns out those, that kind of methodology is actually a great way, you know, for campaigners to get people involved in terms of the development of both the strategies around their campaigns, but then also developing tactics that can, as prototypes and getting people to give them lots of inputs about where they move forward. And it's a way of doing this sort of broader sharing of ownership. Um, and uh, one of the things that, you know, I've it's been interested, it has been pointed out to me several times recently is actually good old fashioned community organizing informed software developers and tech developers, and they integrated those methodologies. Um, and while this has been happening, a lot of campaigners have been, and social change folks have been um, feeling uh, overwhelmed and pushed to doing shortcuts, right? And also, you know, doing that bit of like, develop, well, developing campaign strategies in-house or just moving forward without them without a campaign strategy. And, um, uh, and it's, you know, it's interesting, like now it's starting to come back to them. Oh, Hey, these are, this is a great way to really be engaging people and getting a large group of people engaged in what you are trying to do. And, and so it's just kind of ironic that these methodologies that started out here are, are coming back. And, um, as we say, it's, old wine in a new bottle, but because you can then say to people, hey, these are methodologies that are driving technologies and making new technologies even better, you know what I mean? All of a sudden they get attention and people are, are much more open to them by doing by putting it in that way instead of saying, this is old school stuff. Is there anything that you want to plug, anything that you want to make sure in terms of Heurodoxes and your work that people know about and we can you know, help to publicize both in the podcast, but also in the, the blog post um, in terms of directing people to URLs and resources and things like that. There's two things, actually, that uh, I'd encourage people to, to have a look at. The first is the Eurodox Collaboratory, which is a space for uh, practitioners to exchange uh, on human rights information and specifically documentation. So it's a place where you can go bring your questions, but also where discussions, not quite dissimilar to the one we're having here, are being held, but really focused on using information in different human rights scenarios. So some of the upcoming discussions will, for example, be on documenting human rights violations in coalitions, and previous ones have included digitizing documents. So it's really around that nexus, and it's a place where people come together, bring their questions, and also bring their answers with diverse expertise. Um, the second is WASI, which is something we've already talked about, where in October we'll have a stable release of a very exciting new piece of software that will um, support human rights organizations to really make the best of documents in terms of learning, but also sharing what's, what's in there. 
Cool. Great. And so the other thing I'd, I'd love to get from you is there, is there things out there now that are inspiring and, and helping to inform your work? Anything in terms of readings or, uh, you know, resources, um, things like that, that you are drawing upon to help move you forward? Yes, absolutely. Um, on an organizational level, there's a book that I think I'm taking a lot of inspiration from because it's explaining a different way of how we can be creative in organizations, be respectful with each other without making everything um, a big circle in which voices are drowned or a hierarchical top-down decision-making um, monster. And that book is called Reinventing, Organization by, uh, Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux. Um, another book that is speaking to the aspect of how do I structure my database and how do I choose the right labels, which I think is fantastic, is information architecture um, in the O'Reilly series. Um, it's, it's really accessible and um, has helped uh, many of my colleagues and I to really get to grabs, uh, that get to grip with, with some seemingly complicated but actually not very complicated concepts uh, on how to make the best of data. And then I was referencing it earlier, one book that I found very interesting is uh, how, to, how to Not Network a Nation, The Uneasy History of the Soviet Internet by Benjamin Peters, which is a really fantastic deep dive into some really interesting work around machine learning and networking uh, starting in the 1960s all the way to the 80s. Uh, in the service of a grand world vision that, um, as we all know, collapsed. <laughs> so it's a good reminder of um, extreme intelligence, extreme excitement, um, high-level work not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting lessons in there uh, to, re to reflect on. This concludes this one-on-one -on -one edition of Data as a Team Sport. I'd like to thank our guest, Friedhelm Weinberg from Curadox, for sharing his learnings, wisdoms, and experiences. I'd also like to thank Caitlin Rogers and the rest of the School of Data team for all their work and support in developing this series. You can find the notes from this conversation along with links to all the resources we've mentioned and view the video recording of the conversation in the blog at schoolofdata.org. Our next edition of Data as a Team Sport is Mentors, Mediators, and Mad Skills, Exploring Methodologies for Achieving Data Maturity, and features Emma Prest from Datakind UK and Tin Geber. Thank you for listening. We hope this has helped to illuminate and inspire your own efforts around data literacy.